welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I'm joined this week by regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three representatives to the House, um, the State House from Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning. Good morning, Olga. And welcome to the show for the first time, Rick Morton, who is a candidate. He's running um, for state Senate to represent Wyndham County in the state Senate. Um, But he was also just telling us that he'll be on the ballot as auditor of accounts as well, which means if he is elected to both, we'll need to choose. Um, And you're running on the as a Republican, correct, Rick? Yes. Well, I'm so glad you can join the show today, and I'm going to jump right in. We're going to be talking about Article 22 in a moment, but I want to dive in, Rick, with a question I'm asking all the candidates who come on the show. Of all the ways to serve your community, volunteering, being on the select board, being on the school board, um, volunteering in your local library, of all the ways you could serve your community, why elected office? Yeah, it's a good question. If you have a comfortable life, you don't really need to ask for a lot more responsibility. And being an elected representative is just that, whether you're in the House or the Senate. Uh, so, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I have um, been thinking about that for some time. Main reason I'm running is to uh, really give voice to uh, those who are in opposition to Article 22, which is why I've chosen that or, or offered that as a topic of conversation today. I wanted to be able to express some concerns about that, even from the uh, pro-choice position, especially, I think, from the pro-choice position. Um, and so that's really the main reason I've, I've jumped into the race. Well, thank you for that answer. If the YouTube folks will and Zoom folks will bear with me for a second, I just wanted to pull up Article 22 while I'm, and, and give folks the language of it. Emily, will you please just remind people on the process, what Article 22 is and, and the process it went through to be on the ballot in November? Yep. Um, so, and for listeners who want to sort of go back into the archives, I think we've had one or two previous shows about this as it's moved through this legislative yeah. process which uh, so, uh, before you dive in i will link to in the show notes uh just a reminder to folks at the time it was still a proposition so it will be called prop five mm-hmm. it was not yet article 22. so proposals to amend the constitution must begin in the senate and require 20 votes to pass and the initial approval in the house requires 76 votes and then after that happens after it passes in the house in the senate and in the house so the committee in the senate is the one who develops the language and votes it out, then it's voted out by the Senate. And then when it moves over to the House, it's actually not editable. Um, And so it's voted on by the House and requires 76 votes, which is a simple majority. And the proposal must then be taken up again the following biennium. So a biennium for those who don't live and breathe this is every two years, we sort of start a new legislative process. We have two separate sessions in the legislative biennium And while they um, sort of have beginnings and endings of their own, bills can stay alive through both of them. And we've talked about that on the show before. So in the following biennium, meaning, you know, two years later from the beginning of the process, 
the proposal must then be taken up again in the Senate, where only 16 votes are required. That would be a simple majority in the Senate. And then it goes back over to the House again and needs to pass in the House. And, and again, in that case, it's a majority of those present, which is a slightly different kind of majority. The first time it's the majority of the members in the House, and the second time it's the majority of those present, hmm. which is generally how bills um, are required to pass. And then after that, so four-year process, two votes in the House, two votes in the Senate, different quorum requirements, different majority requirements, then it goes to the voters of the state to be on the ballot. For folks who follow national news more often, a lot of other states have proposition processes where um, things can be added to the ballot by just a majority, uh, by a petition process. Um, California very regularly passes laws in this way, but most other states in the country, I think, have a process where things can be automatically added to the ballot um, as propositions. That never happens in Vermont. That is not part of Vermont's constitution. It's not a possibility in the constitution. So the fact that we're going to be seeing this article, which started off as Proposition 5, and now is called Article 22, because that's where it will be in the constitution. We're amending the constitution. It will be the 22nd article in the constitution. And it's one of the rare times that Vermonters will see this on their November ballot. We regularly see articles with lots of language on our town meeting ballots because that is something that is allowed um, and a big part of our town meeting voting town process. But in terms of statewide elections, this is one of the only times that many of us will see language like this rather than just individuals that we're voting for on the November ballot. Thank you for that, Emily. And just um, bear with us, Rick. We just want to make sure listeners have a good foundation before we, we dive into the conversation. So they know, they really know what we're talking about. The language for Article 22 is very short, so I'm just going to quickly read it. Article 22, parentheses, personal reproductive liberty, that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. So that's, that's the language that would go into the constitution. So, so Rick, can I add just one more piece of context? Sure. sure. So, and for listeners who want to understand what the constitutional context for all, for that article and the context of all the other articles is last August, we read the constitution aloud. Was that, it was August, right? Yeah, it was August. Last August, we read the constitution aloud for listeners. It was a fairly fun series of shows. If folks want to go into the Wayback Machine and listen to that, it might be nice if you're like driving for a long way or falling, is trying to fall asleep. And, um, <laughs> There's also going to be a second constitutional amendment right. on the ballot this November to remove references to slavery from Vermont's constitution. And we will do a separate episode on that. Mm -hmm. I think that change is not getting the same level of press and attention as this one is. Right. Thank you. Uh, so, Rick, what what are you what are you sitting with with Article 22 right now? What it's it's one of your your main uh, platforms in your campaign. So dive into that with us. Sure. The language is vague. It mm -hmm. doesn't even mention women. It doesn't even mention abortion, although the parenthesis does say reproductive liberty. Um, and it talks about autonomy. And all those terms are pretty innocuous in themselves. 
And together they sort of give the suggestion that this is going to be just uh, formalizing something that we already have. Um, and actually there's a lot of uh, concern that I have that some of this language could lead in an, to unintended consequences. I, I don't wanna ascribe intentions to people who wrote the language, but there's some unintended possible consequences here that are that people need to really think about. I personally will be voting against Article 22. I don't think we need it, number one. I, I think it's gonna be um, uh, restrictive of the executive branch, the executive, the legislative branch going forward. It'll, it'll be virtually unreversible. Uh, Emily very capably went through the process of how we got here. If we decide later on, oh, we don't like this, uh, or we wanna change it somehow, the only way to do that is to replicate those two sessions of two successive legislatures voted by the Senate first and then by the House and then repeat the process two years later. And then it goes before the state. It would take maybe 10 years, uh, six to 10 years to decide, you know what, this wasn't a good idea or we we, we didn't like the way it was, was worded. So that's just one caution is let's, why are we, why are we uh, making this change to the Constitution? There's been no change to this portion of the Vermont Constitution since 1786. It sat there with the 21 articles up until now. And this will be the first change. So if we're going to do something like this, let's make sure we do it uh, wisely and properly. So let me stop there and see if you want to follow yeah, up. Yeah, I, I wanted to quickly, if you don't mind, Emily... You mm -hmm. talked about unintended consequences and you talked about the difficulty of changing this. What are some other unintended consequences that you're concerned about? Well, that's that's the thing is, is how can we really know for sure what other people might decide? Oh, I like this language. I think this is going to be great for me. Let me jump in there and I can use this language as a protection for, for the things I want to do. Uh, now, I'm being somewhat vague there, but I have some things in mind. Before I do that, though, I want to mention that if you're a healthcare worker in the state of Vermont and you have a, a desire not to be involved in abortions, um, this language is probably going to make it very difficult for you to say no. In fact, it might. some people suspect that it might make it impossible uh, to say no unless you want to be reprimanded, uh, disciplined, or maybe even uh, license revoked or possibly have to leave the field or leave the state if your conscience uh, leads you not to participate in providing an abortion. Now, people can make their choices, but the pressure is on that person to, to follow what their supervisor says. And I think the, the conscience protection is something really important. It might very well be removed. If it's part of the Constitution, it's an individual right, then an employer like a hospital can say, no, you've got to go in there and do that, even if you don't want to. Thank you, Rick. Sorry, Emily. Um, thanks for waiting. You know, it's interesting thinking about whether or not this is needed, because when we first started this process, like you said, quite a long time ago, a lot of folks felt that it wasn't needed and wondered why the Speaker of the House, Jill Kerwinsky, and the Senate, pro and um, at the time, the majority leader in the House and the majority leader in the Senate, Becca Ballant, who is now the Speaker of the House, is now the pro tem. And 
all of the sort of leadership from the human services committees, like, why were we doing this? It was six years ago. It was a very different political landscape, a very different Supreme Court landscape than we have now. And it felt, um, I think a lot of members and a lot of members of the public wondered, like, why are we doing this? This isn't necessary. There's nothing to really, like, we have protections in Vermont right now. Why are we doing this? And it's been really, for me, incredibly sad and relieving that with the recent Supreme Court decision that we have started this process far enough in advance in Vermont that other states around the country are looking to us to say like, oh, wow, Vermont like really was ahead of the curve, figure this out, knew that some rights that a lot of people take for granted were not in fact protected under federal law and we did need to do something in advance. I think one piece that I've really been interested in as I've learned more about statute and a lot of what I've been doing in the last year in the legislature, having nothing to do with this topic at all, is working a lot with education finance law. And it's been really interesting to spend more time working with the balance between the Constitution, statute, and rules, mm. and, the, and how they interact with each other. Um, and that the relationship between statute... Um, which is what the legislature passes on a regular basis. And if you were elected, Rick, you would be able to pass or work towards, I guess, you know, I certainly don't pass anything on my own. I, I often <laughs> wish I could, but I cannot. Um, <laughs> that we really, um, how broad the constitutional principles are and that statutes goals are really to sort of fit within those broad principles rather than the constitution sort of controlling the statute. Mm. And I say that because it's on some days I feel frustrated that the constitution doesn't drive our statute more than it does. And on other days um, it feels more welcome. You're right. We have not amended the constitution of Vermont for a very, very long time. We, the equal rights amendment um, was tried in Vermont and did not pass um, many years ago. Rumor has it it was a snowstorm that kept some people from going out to vote. Seems like a very early snowstorm. But I've heard from folks in a lot of different directions on this constitutional amendment that it's too broad or too vague and so many different things could fit under it. And I think that's actually the purpose of it. Um, and I don't want to lose track of that. It's not a mistake that it is broad because it is meant as a broad principle that various pieces of statute can fit under or not fit under depending on interpretation. And the interpretation of that sits with the courts. It does not sit entirely with um, the legislature. And so I thought that was sort of an interesting process for me to work through when my experience is mostly with working through statute, which requires a level of minutia, not the level of minutia that sits with rules. I would also just like to clarify that the right of healthcare workers, the really essentially everything that exists right now in Vermont law since we passed the Freedom of Choice Act and actually before we passed the Freedom of Choice Act in 2019 gives healthcare providers really still exactly the same amount of rights and privileges in all directions. Um, that the decisions around medical procedures are left to um, the, medical, the Vermont Medical Society to determine best practices are left to hospital administrators to decide best practices, to really work within their professions of the relationship between providers and um, their patients. And that 
providers are still absolutely able to um, not offer services at a time if they don't feel comfortable with it. Thank you, Emily. None of, that is, none of that changed under the Freedom of Choice Act in 2019, and none of that um, is expected to change under this constitutional amendment. And that's something that, you know, of course, Rick, you're not the first person to bring up that concern. I think it's a very valid concern from folks. And it's something that we've been, you know, checked over and over with attorneys through this process. Rick, you were about to say something. Yes, thank you. I believe during the testimony advancing this legislation, which is now going to be voted upon by the public, uh, you had healthcare representatives in front of the committee in the House and in the Senate, the combined committee, indicating that they have been under substantial pressure already in the state of Vermont to, and, and some threats uh, by their employer. And so I think that the, the general statement that it's gonna be exactly the same kind of situation we've had before, yeah, well, the situation we had before is problematic and it's still problematic, it's gonna be more so this way. And, and I wanna just also touch on the possibility that this kind of language, as vague as it is, possibly introduces the, uh, a division in families, separating parents from the ability to uh, supervise their children and to really have the, uh, an important say, if not the final say, in, in their children's uh, uh, choices as a, young, as a youngster, 10 and 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old. Uh, so I think that's a, people need to really think carefully. Do we wanna put this language in the Vermont Constitution um, and what is it going to do to parental rights? Will it empower the state to take children out of parents' homes if they're if they're determined that their child will not have a, a, a gender change operation or go on puberty blockers or some of the other things that the individual child at the moment in time wants to wants to do? And the parents says, "No way." What does does this language give the state the right to take a child out of the out of the parents' home. Now, that's an extreme reaction, but that sort of thing, we, we see headlines in Canada and other parts of this country where, where people are making these kinds of choices. I just don't want to see that happening. I don't even want the possibility of it happening here in Vermont. You uh, know, it's interesting, Rick, because I, um, I do think the state right now has um, an outsized power to take children, but, you know, without this amendment passing, I think the state has an outsized ability to take children from parents' homes. Um, I think our child protection system is desperately in need of more oversight than the legislature is able to provide at this time. And I was really excited when we created the Office of Child Advocate, and I've talked about that on previous shows, as a mechanism to really provide more oversight and more respite for families whose children are dealing with the child protection system. Um, because it's just, you know, it's something that Vermont really doesn't do as well as some other states at this particular moment in history. Um, and I have a lot of concerns about that. It's interesting when I, one of the thing, one of the sort of pieces outside of reproductive liberty that I see, one of the pieces sort of outside of um, abortion that I see when I look at the reproductive liberty amendment that's actually been really heartening to me is this piece about the right, a reproductive liberty really means the right to parent or not parent as someone sees fit. Um, so it's not just the, right to not parent. So um, me seeking an abortion because I'm not ready or willing to be a parent at the point that I'm pregnant, but also the right, if I am ready to parent, 
to be supported by the state in making that choice or to not have that right infringed upon by the state. And so I really see broad strokes, long-term future. And again, statute would have to support this, which is something statute does not support right now. And so that's still like a really big lift for those who are elected. But I really see it as an opportunity to strengthen the role of parents in their children's lives and able um, our ability to provide oversight to our child protection system. But Emily, with all due respect, the language being proposed for this constitutional amendment is that the individual has the autonomy. And if the individual has the autonomy with no age restriction mentioned, then in the constitution, there's going to be that, that there's going to be that right, so to speak. And even if it's not a wise choice for the child, they could be under influence of, of peers. They could be under influence of some person they are getting counsel from in their school. Uh, but the parents, that's their child. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just concerned that the state would, there'd be some people in the state um, bureaucracy that might feel that this empowers them to intervene in the parent-child, even take them out of the home. Now, that's an extreme outcome, and I hope that would never happen. The fact that we've got some loose regulations right now as far as child protective custody uh, just makes it even more clear that this language doesn't belong in the Constitution. At the, and, and, I, and I think there's a whole host of things we haven't even touched on yet that, uh, that, are, that are problematic. I, you know, the, what I think, again, this differentiation between the Constitution and statute, we actually have a pretty broad set of statute that focuses, um, and as well as medical practice, that focuses on when the age of consent is for various things, when parental consent is required, um, and those ages, you know, around access to therapy, um, access to medication, all of those things, those are all like very specifically set up already. And so it's been, you know, last time I, my son's 17 and a half. And so, you know, he has a lot of agency over his own life at this point and, you know, made him breakfast this morning. And last time we went to the doctor, you know, for the last, you know, since probably he entered adolescence, he's gone into the room by himself and I just sort of stay in the lobby. And, you know, when he goes to the dentist, he drives himself there. And I don't really participate in the process whatsoever. I trust the dentist, Susie, she's great. And last time we went to the doctor, I was like, do I really need to like take this two hours off of work to like go sit in the waiting room of the doctor's office with you? And he's like, yes, you actually need to sign the paperwork, mom. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we go in and it's like, he really has complete privacy in that room with the doctor, but anything that's going to happen or not happen, including, you know, procedures, tests, medication, anything, the doctor like would come back out and ask me before he did any of them. Even things that for me, I really feel like almost in, like some questions the doctor asked me, almost I felt like infringed on my son's privacy at that point. Um, and so existing medical practice, which is quite strong, and our existing statute still stands when this constitutional amendment will pass, um, that really offers a remarkable amount of um, power to parents for children under the age of 18. Uh, if you will allow, I, I, I just want to beg to differ with you somewhat on that. If there's a constitutional conflict between this constitutional language, which is going to be right before us right here, and statute at a different level, 
if it comes to push comes to shove, which which is going to prevail, it's going to be the constitutional principle. And it's so vague that a 12 year old has a right to say no to their parents. Um, and maybe there's other things that I'm not even imagining. And it's not a good it's not a wise choice for them. Uh, and if the if the statute is allowing parents to have a say in the and the Constitution basically says the individual has total autonomy. Uh, I just, I'm just concerned that that could be. And, and where's the recourse? The recourse, I think, Emily, you mentioned this earlier, is that the recourse is the courts. And if we take these kinds of uh, issues and then we go to the court system, well, my impression, I don't, I'm not scientifically uh, uh, apprised of it, but my impression is that the court system is pretty clogged up. Oh, all we all we need is to have a whole host of new issues going before the courts, and uh, and and how long does it take to resolve those issues, and how expensive is that, and how you know how effective and efficient the courts are there. We need them. We we have them. We're, it's good that we do, but I don't know if I want to throw a whole series of these kinds of issues before the courts to resolve. So um, our family court and our criminal court are absolutely clogged up. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt. Um, and, you know, just met with our local state's attorney yesterday and got an update on sort of where the clogs were and how that was working and what that meant. Our Supreme Court is not particularly clogged up and anything like this would go directly to the Supreme Court. It wouldn't have to go through the family court and the, the criminal court process. And nothing would change until something got to the Supreme Court. So it's not that, you know, someone interprets the Constitution a certain way and then that automatically happens. It would be that someone would protest that our existing statute is not in keeping with what's in the Constitution, and then that would go to the Supreme Court, which would be its own, like you said, um, its own lengthy process with some quite qualified people um, really debating and discussing both the intent and what compelling state interest and least restrictive means means. So that's like, you know, there's a lot of content there to discover. Olga, I see you wanting to jump in. I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to jump in. One, uh, because we, we do need to go to break to hear from some of our underwriters. But um, I'm hoping when we come back from break, we can quickly touch on, I don't know if either of you have sat on this, sat with this, but this is what I've been sitting with since, you know, Article 22 started moving forward, is Vermont's uh, history of eugenics and forced sterilizations. And... Um, I'm I'm curious about that context um, as we as we go into the the second half. So, folks, stay tuned. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters. This is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And I'm speaking with regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro, as well as state candidate for state senate as well as auditor of accounts rick morton hello rick thank you for joining us thank you we are talking about article 22 you can find um 
the Montpelier Happy Hour on BCTV, as well as our Facebook webpage and Gmail. All of it's the Vermont, the Montpelier Happy Hour. Emily, before I forget, what do we need to remind people of? Well, Olga, it turns out that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively. Not the station, not their employers, not their family or friends, just them speaking. Thank you. So before the break, we were talking about Article 22, which will be on the statewide ballot in November. And Rick had raised some concerns uh, about the language being vague. Um, Emily raised some um, interesting points about what it meant to navigate that gap between the state constitution and creating statute. Um, and then I asked the question, you know, this, this article focuses on reproductive freedom for both women and men. Um, and that can include a lot. It can include abor abortions. It can include vasectomies. It can include ge uh, gender medication or reassignment. But for me, what I've been sitting with since Article 22 started moving forward through the State House is Vermont's history with eugenics, um, which included for, for some families forced sterilization. And I'm curious, Emily, did that kind of history or context show up in, in the creating of uh, creation of Article 22? Very much. And I actually, um, a little bit of Brattleboro history, I just found out this week that um, Arthur Goodenough and the Goodenough family, which um, I love on Goodenough Road, as some listeners might or might not know, and sort of a big part of this area's history, were themselves subject to the eugenics laws, were considered sort of undesirable, poor people, hill people. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was sort of like a recent striking home little bit for me on our ongoing conversation on eugenics that we've had on the show before. It was very much a part of it. It's actually a part of the national conversation. And that's sort of what I meant when I talked about reproductive liberty being about the right to parent or not parent. Mm -hmm. So there's a long, long standing conversation um, that has gotten a lot richer and more complex in the last few years really within the feminist movement um, and increasing moves to be much more intersectional in those conversations and to include more voices that while abortion is often the driving reproductive issue for white women, and while we know that black women and other women of color, Latina women, are much more likely to actually suffer and have negative consequences from the banning of abortion, because of financial means and travel access and a bunch of other things um, and actually having much higher maternal mortality rates. So a lot more black women and Latina women die when abortion is banned. That's actually often not the driving issue um, around reproductive liberty for non-wealthy white women. It is actually the flip side of that. It's the right to parent because um, from the sort of very formal eugenics that we saw in Vermont, we saw really driven in Vermont, head over to Nazi Germany from Vermont, um, come back to the U.S. And I'm laughing because it's just so horrifying that sometimes, well, that's what my body does. Mm -hmm. The forced sterilization is something that still actually happens in the U.S. It happens to women who are incarcerated. It happens to poor women right after they have their first babies often. Um, my ex-sister-in-law um, had 
a child in Alabama and was under tremendous pressure to get her tubes tied immediately following the birth of her first child. And so that right to parent, the right to not have pressure towards sterilization for sterilization, all of that long-term non-reversible procedures um, is really a big part of the reproductive liberty amendment and a really what I see as a very positive move to by Vermont to move outside of what is often our, you know, we have an incredibly white bubble, especially in the legislature. It's much older. It's wealthier. We've talked about that pretty endlessly on the show, the demographics of who's in the state house. And I feel really proud and heartened by how much the reproductive liberty amendment really took into account those historical conversations, especially in the year that we formally apologized for eugenics. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really one of the steps that we're taking towards it. And the broad statewide coalition that's working towards the reproductive liberty amendment and has been um, working to support Article 22 getting passed is very, very careful um, and very specific in their language to be talking about reproductive liberty more broadly, to be talking about the right to parent and not just the right to not parent, um, and to be including voices and faces and bodies from a broad array of humans. Thank you. Rick, um, have you, I I know that uh, a lot of your concern with Article 22 sits on on abortion um around abortion but for you what what kind of um have you had a chance to kind of think about historical context or or some of the ramifications of perhaps not having this article um actually um, abortion although i'm personally opposed to it is not the main concern that i have about article 22 because the State of Vermont already in statute has uh, all the protections a woman wants, if you will, up to the to 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 uh, to abort a full term baby up to the day of delivery. It, the 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 decision uh, reversing Roe versus Wade doesn't influence that at all. It doesn't change anything in the statute of Vermont. Uh, I'd say that's a sad thing, but but for those people who are pro-choice. You don't need this constitutional language at all. You've already got state statute fully covering up to the moment of birth. So late-term abortions are legal, and they would remain legal even if this is defeated. My concern, uh, the mentioning about eugenics, uh, Emily, thank you for that uh, backdrop there. I think that's, well, to use a word that we often use when when there's a tragedy, is horrific. And, and I believe it needs to be addressed in statute very, very carefully and very uh, uh, distinct, dis, you know, definitely. I don't think we need to have imprecise language to do that. Just because something was done bad in the past doesn't mean that vague language is going to fix it now. And there's unintended consequences of th- that I think people might not have thought about. Um, does this um, give the permission, uh, if a a person's under pressure, if they're under financial pressure, does it open the door for someone to uh, contract for fetal harvesting of baby parts? Because it's their reproductive autonomy involved, they can decide to end the the pregnancy and and dispose of the the baby parts uh, for for profit, uh, because maybe they're desperate for funds. 
Um, I'm so sorry, Rick. I need to stop you there. I'm feeling very um, stupid at this moment. I don't understand what harvesting be like. I don't. Could you walk me through that? I don't understand like who would be buying baby parts or how that's a profit. I'm. I'm. That's new to me. I'm sorry. Okay. No, that's fine. Uh, but this is one of the concerns that people might not have thought about when they go in to vote. Uh, so here's the situation. Uh, right now in our country, um, a lot of the Planned Parenthood facilities are taking the aborted fetuses and they're making a second line of profit by selling those to researchers who want the tissue for, for their research because they find that aborted tissue is a higher quality for their research purposes. Now, the thought of doing that for profit is kind of, you know, it makes you cringe. And I think that if we put this language in there, then what's to stop that from happening in Vermont? What's what's the what's the back what's the backstop? The legislature can't come in because it's in the constitution. You'd have to do a constitutional amendment. That's a six-year process. The executive branch can't come in because they're proscribed from that by the constitutional language. Even the courts would be clogged up. Like Emily said, it would have to go through the court system, even if it's a Supreme Court. And so that slows everything down. And who's imagining? What about what about prostitution? Uh, we, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not jump into, I, let's not jump into one the thing prostitution. Added, yeah, all the, all the, the things you take things in one, on so, a, one at I, a time, please. <laughs> I have lots of things to say about prostitution too, but I would rather um, spend a minute on the baby parts. So um, aside from the fact that I don't, um, I don't think people are selling baby parts, but even if that was something we needed to worry about, um, it is illegal in the U.S. to sell organs, um, yes. And I actually read this really, um, I've had a longstanding interest in blood plasma donation, um, partly just because I've spent time in some, you know, pretty rough neighborhoods. And I've always just like sort of the combination of the um, pawn shop, fast food restaurant, plasma donation clinic, mm -hmm. cash um, paycheck advance, yep. usually like a lot of, you know, neighborhoods. You just have sort of like those four businesses and that's all that's available. And this morning I read an article in the New York Times that I actually really recommend that was about um, plasma donation because I don't think it's something that's talked about very often mm -hmm. in the US. Mm -hmm. But plasma donation is really like sort of the last body part that you, is the last, you know, part of yourself that you can really sell because I think it's generally understood that it's against medical ethics and against sort of good practice in the US to be selling things like that. And I would prefer that we plasma donation was also um, illegal because it's pretty horrifying. But, uh, and so aside from the fact that that's like already illegal under federal law um, for people to be selling those things themselves. Um, I also think that actually isn't part of reproductive autonomy. It's not part of reproduction. Um, so I don't even think that this would necessarily fit under that. One thing that I've been thinking about in this, because I, like I said, I've had all of these conversations about like what a constitutional amendment means and like the broad language that we tend to use in our constitutions so that they can be flexible to the changes of, you know, hundreds of years of history. And then what that means in statute, there's this language that basically creates the state's ability to tax. 
in the constitution that I think we spent some time on Olga Mm -hmm. last year that really is like pretty narrow. It really has to say like that the state is better off than that person having the money that like the state can spend those resources better than the person being taxed could. And the language is slightly vaguer than that, but that's the, that's the gist behind that language. And I think there's like actually a lot of room for some, um, challenges to how we tax right now in Vermont and that constitutional language. And there are a lot of people in Vermont who do not like the way they're taxed, right? I mean, I think we can all agree on that one, right, Rick? Again, aren't we getting a little afield? No, because I think that the really what we're discussing is like what the Constitution means or doesn't mean and like how it informs state law, right? And how it informs our ability to live our lives under state law. And in these hundreds of years of Vermonters saying, I don't like the way the state is taxing me. No one has actually, um, to my knowledge, brought a constitutional challenge to that that has passed. Um, And so I think that was just sort of, it's an interesting part of me thinking about how the constitution shapes our lives or doesn't, especially on the state level versus the federal level. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious for, I'd love to hear from Rick and, and Emily if you have thoughts too, but I heard an interesting interview, uh, Rick, on NPR over the summer, and it was right after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. And the interviewer spoke with a, a gentleman by the name of Stuart M. Butler. He's from the Brookings Institute. And he was talking about if he does a lot with public health. And, and he felt that if the state is going to... Um, say to a woman, you have to have a baby or in under article 22, if since we're putting this in the context of article 22, if the state is going to tell people um, what they can and cannot do with their reproductive autonomy for, for him, he was feeling that the state then needed to support these mothers and children financially so that, um, they they would have um, you know good health care roofs over their heads foods in their stomach that type of thing. So uh, the exact language he used was adequate level of benefits to enable them to live a reasonable life. So I'm curious for you since you have these concerns with Article 22, what policies would do you think? Um, how do I put this? you know, what policies would you want to put into place that would support people in the event that they, um, like in the case, we'll just stay on abortion, in the case that if a, if a woman didn't have a right to an abortion, what policies do you think Vermont should put into place to, to um, care for that mother and child? Well, um, if Article 22 is defeated, there's there's no woman in Vermont who's going to be forced to have a bit. It's not going to happen because it's already codified in law statute that if she wishes to, if she chooses to, she can have that abortion up to the day of birth. That's not going to change whether we pass or, not, or don't pass Article 22. But there's a lot of other things that Article 22 might bring that might might come from that that we're not thinking now, like this 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 fetal cell lines and, and uh, fetal har- harvesting, uh, which is abhorrent just to think about it. Um, it may be illegal, but you know what? 
if somebody says, well, I want to do it anyway, and it's my individual reproductive autonomy to get pregnant, to have the baby growing inside me, and if I want to stop it and then decide what to do commercially with the baby after I've had that abortion, that's my business. It's my autonomy. That's, you know, that's kind of a crass approach. I, I would hope nobody would ever do that, but the language here might permit it. And, and we're not even talking about other things like um, uh, pedophilia. There's rules against that too. Uh, but what if somebody says, well, my individual reproductive autonomy is I want to, I want to, I want to have a, a young partner. What does that have to do with reproduction? Mm. We got the young partner pregnant. Mm. Or, yeah. I, I mean, have we thought about the unintended possible consequences of this language? Um, and I just think that there's, and, and the whole, one of the passions that I have is to, is to come down hard on trafficking in Vermont. There's an organization which is an anti-sex trafficking organization called Polaris. Mm -hmm. um, it's a nationwide organization. They grade Vermont F because we don't have protections in statute for people who are trafficked for labor trafficking or sex trafficking. And this language, individual reproductive autonomy, how hard would it be for a pimp to force a woman to say, well, I'm doing this because I want to? How hard would it be to intimidate them or to threaten their family? Or, and, and, and this, is, this is just the real world we live in, that there are bad people doing terrible things to abuse other people. I'd like to see that stop. And this language is just this. This language is just going to introduce the potential that that they're going to have a, a, a stronger case against the courts that try to come against trafficking if they say, "Well, I'm I'm doing I'm doing it because I want to." And, and and the confusion here is that reproductive autonomy might evolve by the living language of the law to not in reproductive autonomy but sexual autonomy. Whatever I want to do sexually is my autonomous choice. And, and you know, that's not the language, but that might be where it evolves into. I, I hear what you're saying, Rick. I think one thing that I, I would add to that concern, however, is just using that example of, of a pimp and the person they're abusing. There's two sets of, of consent there. And so if if um, the person being abused is not consenting, then their autonomy is being infringed upon. That's right. And that's so exactly. I, I kind of don't see how that's going to hold up. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think there's a really a broad set of research that we've talked about before on the show in the context of legalizing sex work, that when we look at the autonomy, um, the bodily autonomy of the person who is engaging in sex work, um, the presence of a pimp and the ability to provide legal protections um, to really ban that relationship and ban the abuse between the trafficker and the trafficked um, is actually made a lot more strong in places where sex work is legal so that the person who's engaging it actually has legal respite in order to um, seek protections because it creates a much more defined set of laws around whether or not a person is able to consent or not. 
But I think we are going a little far afield here. And I'm remembering that we have two questions we have to ask Rick before we wrap up. Well, I asked the first one in the um, first half. So well, the luckily, second one, one of them's mine, which yes, I know you have your policy question. question, but the other one is we have not talked at all, Rick, about the fact that you are running for two positions simultaneously. Oh, yes, yes. And one of them being um, auditor of accounts, which right now is an office held by Doug Hoffer, who is the person you're running against, who has been on the show before for folks who want to learn a little bit more about him. Um, feel free to go into the Wayback Machine. We have so many links on this show. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is um, for one of our Senate candidates. In both cases, you will be in a position where you will not be able to do much about Article 22 if it okay. passes. Um, but curious to know if you do happen to win both spots, which job do you want mm -hmm. and why? Well, uh, let me just give you the, the, the hopefully the Cliff Notes version. If I was to choose the Vermont Senate, I'd be one of 30 representatives not representatives, but 30 senators. Mm -hmm. And it might just give the uh, the Republican caucus a little bit more leverage to bring these discussions before legislation is passed. I believe, I'm going to use some somewhat inflammatory language here. It's I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it's not really all that far afield. I believe the Democratic Party has been basically taken over by progressives um, and because the progressive party is pretty much withering on the vine. And it's a runaway legislature now. They're passing all kinds of experimental legislation, whatever whim comes to mind. I realize I'm exaggerating somewhat, but the whole idea of decriminalizing prostitution in Burlington uh, is one example. I think the attempt was, but the intention was to maybe do that statewide. Maybe the intention is to do that next session and I think if you have a stronger um, Republican caucus, caucus, you're going to find that there's going to be more discussion about that. It won't be so easy to pass extreme legislation, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the clean heat standard and, uh, and uh, making the uh, charter change in Brattleboro to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote and hold office. Uh, those are just three examples off the top of the head. Well, uh, this none of those things passed, though. Well, partly they didn't pass because they, one was vetoed and the veto was sustained by all the Republicans and two Democrats who couldn't swallow the bill. They decided we can't go there. Yeah. If you had a stronger Republican caucus, then moderate Democrats who aren't being represented well by their party uh, would find that, you know what, we're going to have more discussion, that we're going to have to have compromise on this legislation. We're going to have to make sure that we're a little bit more uh, mainstream rather than going to the fringes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a valuable step. And so I hope to, that, so that's on one side. That's not the Cliff Notes version. I realize I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't speak Cliff Notes. The other, <laughs> si the, the other side, the other side, and I'll try to be briefer on this, on auditor of accounts, that's like, a, you know, you talk about that and you start yawning and you know, your head. I nods. think it's the best job in state government myself. That's why I'm curious. This is want. government. This is government checking government. If you think government owes overreaching, the auditor of accounts is the one who looks over the government's shoulder, executive, legislative, even judicial functions, not just at the state level, but other levels, all state contracts, all state relationships with entities, NGOs, the potential is immense. And I believe Doug Hoffer and his team have probably done a reasonably good job, but I think every now and then 
you need to change the personnel because you have a fresh set of eyes and you have a, uh, not that you're going to change priorities necessarily, but you're going to have that uh, vantage point is going to be somewhat different. One of the things that I would like to offer as a possibility here is in, in my circle of acquaintances, election integrity is an extremely important issue. Having confidence that elections are run properly and they're, they're being supervised properly. Auditor of accounts can do some of that. Uh, maybe some of the Dominion machines on a, just check a couple of towns or some of the other election, you know, mail-in ballots, how are they handled? We, we've entered into a huge experiment with universal mail-in ballots. How are they handled? What about students who've graduated from school, but they're still on the ballot? They've moved out of state. Are they going to get those ballots and vote in Vermont? Um, what about at the other end of the spectrum, not the young people? What about those in the nursing homes? How are those ballots handled? I work in a nursing home facility. I'm very confident they do a really good job. But you know what? What are the controls? So Auditor of Accounts has a big responsibility and is a wide variety of things, not just these two. So I'd have a big choice. I might just go with Auditor of Accounts. Okay, interesting. Thank you, Rick. Um, quickly, uh, because we are running out of time, one question I'm asking all the other candidates, Rick, is if, you know, if the goal is to make Vermont work better for everybody, what is the one policy you would like to see implemented that you feel would make Vermont work better for everybody? Um, Isn't that well, the worst? You just get one. One. Just one. Just one. 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 Okay. Well, this might be a bit of a surprise for you. Um, I'm trying to see if I have the paper here. I think, and this is again a philosophical thing, mm -hmm. to actually slow down the legislative process a little bit. Hmm. I'd like to see when every law is proposed, who wrote it, what their background is, if there's collaborators, what their contribution was, why do we need it? What level of government is appropriate to get involved? If it needs to get involved, what community resources are there? What are other states doing? How has it worked out for them? And I had a whole list of about 12 or 13 questions I would want to have asked written out before you even get to the text of the law, mm -hmm. answering these questions so that every law that's proposed has to go through that vetting process and yes, it would slow things down, but it might make a better product. I totally agree. I actually conducted a training for all of my colleagues as a member of the Government Accountability Committee, where I offered a template to all members um, to go through a very similar process. I think Legislative Council would be thrilled to have that level of clarity when they are being asked to draft a law. Um, and then I was invited into a number of committees where I trained other committee members and sort of thinking in that strategic way about the work that they were doing. Um, New Mexico actually has a really interesting branch of their joint fiscal office that performs some of that work with legislators. And so I'm hoping um, over the next couple of years to really build out our staff capacity to be working through some of those issues because it is absolutely needed um, for people to be sort of moving beyond um, I think we often think of a law as the solution to things, um, but don't spend enough time thinking through what other solutions might be, um, what the problem is we're trying to solve. And um, I think there's a lot to be done on that. Thank you. Just, do I have another 30 seconds? 30 seconds. Okay. 
Um, just as an example, too, Bill Scott, I thought, did a pretty good job of the pandemic. But I think uh, the statute that he based it on was in thinking in terms of ice storms, which are going to last for a couple of weeks, hmm. not a pandemic, which is going to last for a couple of years. So I think we need legislative input in a formal way so that um, in future situations, we can have at least reporting to and acquiescence of the legislature in the process. Yeah. Thank you. We are out of time. So quickly, Rick, um, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about your campaign, ask you questions, how can they do that? Um, I have a website, Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N, the number four, VT for Vermont, VT Senate.com. Fantastic. For VTSenate.com. Thank you. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes too, folks. Emily, where can folks find out more about you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, where you will find links to my phone number, address, social media feeds, any other way you want to get in touch. And this has been the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can find us there Friday at 2, as well as wherever you find your podcasts, BCTV and Emily's YouTube channel. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.